Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Rory Cormack about his study of the use of covert action as a tool of British foreign policy, entitled Disrupt and Deny, Spies, Special Forces, and the Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy. Rory, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. I'm a, a British academic. I'm an associate professor of international relations at the University of Nottingham. But really, I'm a historian masquerading as a political scientist. What really interests me is, is, is the study of history post-1945 and, and how that helps us understand current international relations, which, of course, uh, in which covert, ha- covert action features quite prominently over the last few years. I was about to ask how your book fits within that, because you, and I think one of the things that, one of the great strengths of your book is you illuminate this dimension, which we don't necessarily understand at the time or appreciate the time because of its very nature being covert. What led you to adopt such a uh, wide-ranging study of, of covert action in the, in the post-45 period? It wasn't initially supposed to be quite as wide-ranging as it ended up becoming, and that's because... Well, I, I decided I want to write a, this history of, of British covert action. I wanted to use declassified files to do that um, because people generally, I don't think, appreciate just how much is out there. Even though all MI6 files are classified, all Special Forces files are classified, but there is, um, as the book shows, uh, more than enough material to write I think, a a robust narrative. But it became broader because the British definition or understanding of covert action, as I quickly realised, is is quite vague and is all-encompassing. And this meant that that my my neat little book, which was supposed to be a a brief history of of covert action, suddenly became history of British propaganda, British deception, British, British special forces, British political action, i.e. bribery and blackmail, and all of these different things, all these kind of secret aspects of statecraft all became bounded up in this one concept, which meant the book suddenly became became very big. That actually gets to something with which you open the book, which is this explanation of what covert action entails. And some people uh, listening might you know immediately springs to mind sort of the the, the popular culture image from uh, thrillers and, and movies of, of assassinations and, and and bombings and so forth. And as you explain in the book, what covert action uh, is you know, as as the British have used it is, is much more wide ranging. And in fact, that's sort of the least aspect of of what covert action entails. Why have you you know how did you what led you to that classification? Of, of covert action as you have defined it in terms of propaganda and, 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 and bribery and so forth? Most people think of the, the phrase covert action and see it 
as as an Americanism, something that just the just the CIA does. And in the general literature, people kind of assume that the British translation for it is special operations or something called special political action. But what I found is that is that Britain um, doesn't define it in a way that the Americans do. There's nothing written down, at least that's been declassified. And this meant that it was kind of just seen as an active dimension to intelligence. It was intelligence doing stuff, shaping things. I think it's really important to start any book of this nature with a a, a brief discussion about what it is that we're trying to to look at here, because um, it affects, uh, I don't know, not just the activity, but who does it, how it's authorised. And these more mechanical questions, I suppose, but they're vital in such a sensitive area of as covert action in a democracy. How it is authorised, what it is, what it entails, um, how it is is overseen by by elected um, politicians. These really do matter when you're dealing with with very secretive aspects of states. I think that really comes across from the start of your book because when you open it in 1945 you have this very interesting dynamic of a government which is detaching itself from covert action. We, you know, the Second World War was one in which covert action was rife. You had not just the traditional uh, institutions that uh, had been uh, you know, developed over the previous decades, but you also had the wartime creation of the Special Operations Executive and how at the end of the war, there was a sense that all of that was going to be taken down. And yet at the same time, as you describe, there's this growing sense, of, not just among members of the British uh, you know, uh, state, but also the British military, that there is in fact a continuing and, and in some respects expanding need for this with the, uh, with the challenge posed by the Soviet Union. Well, that's it. And the um, World War II professionalized British um, special operations capabilities and um, famously Churchill created the special operations executive and tasked them to set Europe ablaze. But as soon as the war finished, it created this this existential question about British covert action capabilities, which was how suitable are these for peacetime? A lot of diplomats in the British Foreign Office thought that, well, these types of capabilities, are, they're very un-British. They're not very gentlemanly. They're not very, not very civil, quite frankly. And we shouldn't be doing them. We should be leading by example. It's the British way. Um, but the military were, and unsurprisingly, former special operations executive um, officers, were much more pro- this kind of activity, and we're lobbying the Prime Minister to say, look, yes, the war has finished, but the Russians are on the rise. If we get rid of these capabilities, they will be gone and lost forever. We need to keep some sort of, we need to keep some sort of special operations team in place, even if just as an insurance measure. Uh, And the Foreign Office, there was a very, very big um, bureaucratic debate about this. And eventually, some of the special operations capabilities got transferred into MI6, where they belong today. But the, the wily Foreign Office uh, diplomats ensured 
that they had a veto over British special operations use uh, ever since uh, 1946. And with the history of British covert action is also a fascinating history of Whitehall intrigue and diplomats trying to outmaneuver the military to ensure that they have control over this very, very controversial and very, very risky um, form of statecraft. And as you present it, this is not just a matter of you know, bureaucratic turf war. You describe the military as having a very different idea in mind as to what, uh, as to how to apply covert action and, and, and what should be the purpose of one that's, that's far more uh, aggressive and provocative than what the foreign office imagined. Yeah, the, the military um, see the Cold War as a war. And therefore, they feel that it should be in their jurisdiction. They feel that they should be employing covert action to take the um, to put the Soviets on the back foot, to employ it in an offensive manner, to to soften up the Soviets, ready for a future war, which they believed may well be coming. And therefore, Britain should 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 um, should take the lead in covert action. And we're talking here about a whole range of different types of, of quite aggressive actions, including sabotage, kidnap, um, special operations, arson is mentioned. Um, even at one stage, liquidation uh, is, is mentioned, which is incredibly, uh, incredibly rare to see in the, in the British National Archives. But all the while, you've got the, the diplomats seeing covert action as something different something which should only be employed uh, more defensively to to maintain the status quo and they interpret it in a much softer manner so things like um, unattributable propaganda um, things like uh, bribery and 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 when the, when we see the word liquidation written down, uh, I think it almost gave various diplomats a heart attack in the Foreign Office, and it was it was quickly quickly ruled out. This was 1948, I think. So we we see these these different conception, and because because British understandings of covert action are so vague, um, on the plus side it allows nimbleness, it allows flexibility, but on the downside you see these 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 different approaches, different understandings leading to, to tension within the government and, and um, an offering to, to gridlock. You described some of these uh, early operations that they attempted and some of the challenges they faced. I was wondering if you could maybe choose one or two that you find are emblematic of this early effort and some of the uh, efforts to establish this idea of covert action in what was a non-wartime world. Well, in... In Europe, it was slightly different between the British uh, post-war approach in Europe between and, and the Middle East. And um, in Europe, Britain was was more cautious because the stakes were a lot higher. If covert action went wrong, it risked escalation to World War Three and, and ultimately to to um, some sort of to, 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 to nuclear um, holocaust. Ultimately. Um, so Britain was quite cautious and they developed what diplomats referred to as a pinprick approach. And this basically amounted to small scale operations to sow distrust, 
to undermine Soviet legitimacy and control, to drive a wedge between the populations of the satellite states and and um, and Moscow. So examples would include things like planting evidence on Soviet officials to discredit them. It would involve things like um, spreading rumours about impending uprisings uh, to try and make the Soviets paranoid and concentrate more on defending their territory than, than expanding into Western Europe. It included things like um, economic sabotage of Czechoslovakian factories um, and trying to uh, create a wedge by, 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 by working out that, for example, there was tension between um, Czechoslovakian workers and um, the, the Kremlin, where the, the Czechoslovaks thought that the Kremlin were exploiting their, their industry. And the Brits recognised there was this, this tension and so used propaganda, used economic sabotage to take that fissure and just kind of crack it open. And that was the, the standard approach, was try and find where there was some sort, of, some sort of tension, some sort of cleavage, and then use propaganda to um, create chaos and to exploit that in a way. And that, this is timeless. Um, this, is, this is how states use propaganda. They don't necessarily create the rift themselves. They will find rifts to, to exploit and, and, and drive open. You referenced during this period the activities of you know these very famous figures like Kim Philby, who uh, were actually working as double agents for the Soviet Union. And yet, one of the things you point out is that oftentimes we've uh, overstated their actions. You, for example, you, you reference his involvement in, in uh, one activity. I can't remember what it was, but you point out how, in many respects, these activities have been turned months previously. So you have British agents that are being uh, inserted, or you, you have these uh, you know, double agents being cultivated, and yet it seemed like early on it was the British who were being backfooted by the by by uh, you know Soviet efforts to counter a lot of these initial activities. That was Albania, and it was uh, an unmitigated disaster. The story the story goes like this: um, nineteen late nineteen forty eight, the the Brits decide that they want to be a little bit more offensive. And Albania is the, 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 perfect, uh, the perfect starting place um, because it's, it's physically detached or from the, well, geographically detached already from the Soviet Union. Um, and the, 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 um, the communists there were, were messing around in the Greek Civil War, which, which the British didn't appreciate. So for a variety of reasons, Albania formed a, formed a nice test case to see how we could stir up trouble behind the Iron Curtain. And they ultimately in, um, trained a bunch of agents in, on Malta and then set them in, uh, off in, in little fishing boats to land on the Albanian coast to work their way up um, inland in order to try and work out if there was potential for a rebellion. Um, and if there was potential for rebellion, then covert action would move to the next phase in coordination with the Americans to try and um, promote said rebellion. But it went horribly wrong. And um, some of the, the agent teams uh, managed to escape over the border to Greece. Others um, 
others died at the hands of the Soviets because the Soviets were were ready for them. They were they were expecting this, and many observers have pointed to Kim Philby as the reason the Soviets were expecting this. Famously, uh, famous Soviet um, agent inside MI6, and, and that would seem to be a, an, an easy answer. But looking at the British files, which have only recently been declassified, and it transpires that, well, firstly, Philby didn't know the details of the operation early enough that the Soviets had been tipped off before uh, Philby was briefed on it. And the Brits laid the blame at the foot of the the emigres, the dissidents who they with whom they worked, the Albanians. They thought that the Albanian uh, factions they were working with, arming, training, were were quite loose lipped, had poor inter, uh, had poor communication security, and were more interested often in, in fighting themselves than, than taking the fight to the Soviets. And um, and at the same time, they they underestimated the strength of Soviet internal security. Um, it was it was a lot more powerful. And it infiltrated Albania a lot more, um, a lot more comprehensively than the British had given them credit for. We were almost thinking, you know, the kind of comparing it to the weaknesses of, of Nazi Germany, whereas we, who we could, we had access to their intelligence, we could read their their their, um, their communications. The Soviets were a much were a much bigger black hole compared to wartime experience. And um, the Brits, frankly, didn't know how strong Soviet um, Soviet capabilities were. So for all these reasons, the Soviets were, were ready and waiting. And the poor British, uh, the poor Albanian agents trained by the British were sent off in many cases uh, to their deaths. You mentioned uh, the American involvement in the Albanian operation, and that also uh, gets to another aspect of your book, which you talk a lot about, which is how it's not just the British that are embarking upon this new effort at uh, peacetime uh, covert operations, but the United States as well. Given how important that uh, relationship is in terms of the narrative you describe in your book, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon it, especially in these uh, early years when both of them are starting out with the with this new enterprise. The Anglo-American dimension is is probably the the bit that I found most most fascinating as I was researching it, because we have this understanding of this very very close um, so-called special relationship. Well, that's a phrase the Brits obviously use a lot more than the Americans do. <laughs> Uh, Americans have special relationships with lots of countries, but we we cling on to this special relationship with the Americans, uh, and so you have this this closeness of of covert action along with uh, intelligence activities more broadly. Um, but one thing that struck me, and obviously it was a close relationship compared to any that, that the Britain had with any other states, but one thing that struck me was the 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 pragmatic nature of it and the the. The competition and the disagreements, and they came very, very early on, as as early as 49, 50, this, this cliche, which has been built up over the years, that, that Britain had the expertise, but America had the money. And that's where that was the driving force of the cooperation. That that kind of falls apart as early as 49-50, when British operations in Albania are flagging, and the Americans are saying, Well, hang on. We thought we thought you guys were good. We <laughs> the experts at this stuff. 
Um, and meanwhile, the Brits are, are looking at the Americans thinking, goodness me, you know, um, what on earth are you guys doing? This is a small country in Albania and we're kind of just kind of, um, our, our agents teams aren't coordinating and they're, they're chasing each other and it's going horribly wrong. Um, to the extent that they, the, the operation in Albania, many people see it as a joint operation. The phrase the Americans used was um, policy coordination, but operational disengagement, which is a kind of a, a bureaucratic way of saying, look, we want the same goals here, but we're not going to work that closely together because um, one, we don't think you're as good as you think you are. Two, we're worried about um, spy leaks and your security. Um, and and you see this kind of this pragmatic relationship across the board. I mean, a, a few years later in, in in Iran, the 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 Brits are quite open, well, amongst themselves, not telling the Americans obviously, about how they're trying to overplay the communist threat to entice the Americans into the covert action. And the other thing I just mentioned briefly is the the the, the standard narrative at least in in british books is that one of the reasons why mi6 and the cia work closely together on on covert action was because mi6 wanted to rein in the cia mi6 thought the cia were, were gung-ho um are too risky and you know, their, their crazy operations would risk world war three um which in some cases was certainly true but at the same time, what really struck me in some of the American files was the Americans thinking the same thing about the Brits. <laughs> and there was one great thing at the start of Albania where someone was briefing the, the, the American Secretary of State saying, don't mention liberation to the British because they'll get carried away. Um, and this was particularly the case in the mid-1950s in the Middle East, where the Brits were planning to overthrow about four different governments all at the same time. It all got a bit crazy. And um, and the Americans came for a briefing in MI6 headquarters and could not believe what they were hearing. They thought it was absolutely bonkers. So you have this, this uh, numerous examples of, of the, the, the Brits trying to manipulate the Americans, the Brits trying to bring the Americans on board, the Americans concerned about British activity in a way that the, the history books don't don't really appreciate. And that was that was one of the the dynamics of the, of the book, which which personally I found I found most fascinating. You mentioned how the British were very active in the Middle East, and that gets to uh, another uh, point that you make in your book, which is that they you, you've already talked about how when it came to Europe they were very cautious. And when it came, though, to their activities outside of Europe, particularly in those areas which they regarded as within a, a sort of an imperial sphere of influence in, in the 1940s, 1950s, they're much more, uh, uh, much busier, uh, much more, for lack of a better word, aggressive. I was wondering if you could explain uh, the, this this contrast in the mindset and, and, and some of the problems they, they faced in, in what was really a very different environment from Europe. There were a couple of, of reasons driving that, I would say. The first is they saw the Middle East as inherently less risky. Um, we would expect, we might expect, when Churchill becomes prime minister again in 1951, that he would resurrect some sort of special operations executive, um, aggressive special operations in, in Eastern Europe. But he, he doesn't. He continues 
Atlee's quite cautious approach um, to, to to Europe. And the reason, apart from risk aversion and fear of, of causing uh, World War Three, was that he wanted to be. He was. This was a very, an outrageously egotistical premiership, and he wanted to be remembered as the man who won the Second World War and the man who ended the Cold War. And um, he was also desperate for the Nobel Peace Prize. So you can imagine the excitement he must have felt when the Nobel Committee called him. And his, his heart must have been a flutter. Uh, <laughs> but then he was, he was devastated when they offered him the Nobel Peace Prize, for, no, sorry, the Nobel Prize for Literature um, instead for his, his wartime history. Um, he, was, he, he was absolutely devastated. Um, so you know, this was kind of explained the more cautious approach in Europe. Um, by contrast, the Middle East was uh, seen as less risky. It was seen as an area where Britain long held interests, um, and, and, and many of these these, uh, these these people, the Brits engaging in covert action here, were, were frankly old imperialists. Um, who were attracted to the adventure of imperialism and and thought that the British Empire, you know, they, they they fully supported the the empire and wanted to maintain as much influence as, as possible. And they were driven to covert action because in the 1950s, as more states become, uh, as nationalism rises uh, and more states become independent and join the United Nations, there's more and more backlash against Western, particularly British. Uh, interference in, in in the Middle East uh, and against colonialism in general. So the Brits are kind of forced to uh, take a more concealed approach to influencing the Middle East, shall we say, than the old-fashioned approach of gunboat diplomacy or just changing a country, changing a, a territory's constitution unilaterally. So we see a a uh, a vast range of operations across a whole host of countries, starting perhaps most famously with the overthrow of the Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in 1953, um, which, although ultimately was a joint uh, CIA MI6 operation, it was the Brits who started the ball rolling um, a good two years before it actually happened. Um, moving on to uh, three attempts to overthrow the Syrian government in about in, in two years, 56, 57. Um, we have uh, special operations against Yemen involving uh, sponsoring tribal raids across the border from the British colony of South, British territory of um, Aden and the protectorate of South Arabia. Uh, we have propaganda in Lebanon, in Oman. We have and then, of course, um, particularly famously, we have the the range of operations against the Egyptian president, Nasser, and oh, as well as propaganda against the Saudi monarchy as well. So you can you get a sense of just how widespread um, British covert action was in the Middle East to the extent that they they almost try to normalise it into routine policy, particularly after the the success of of Iran, which the Foreign Office admitted. Uh, caused them to change their mind on quite a few future operations which they previously blocked. But because Iran, um, where the operation had seemed to be so successful insofar as it did manage to overthrow Mossadegh, um, the Foreign Office kind of thought, OK, well, we can we can entertain uh, a few more covert actions that we otherwise might have vetoed. At the very same time that the Suez fiasco in 1956 
seems to uh, underscore the fact that gunboat diplomacy is, you know, is definitely no longer uh, viable, if for no other reason than the, you know, the very visible nature of it is very alienating. And as you point out, as you've already mentioned, that, you know, covert action by being behind the scenes, by being uh, less visible, doesn't achieve that, that sense of alienation, which becomes so much more important, as you describe, as they're starting to deal not with subject people, but independent nations who whose attitude toward the British is going to shape relations with them. And there was a there was a big debate about whether it was appropriate to engage in covert actions against imperial populations. A big uh, school of thought, particularly coming out of MI5, which um, had responsibility for for imperial intelligence was saying, look, we we cannot do this. It undermines, they, 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 they will find out. And when they find out, it completely undermines our entire approach to decolonization, which at the time the Brits were quite proud of and thought we were doing a, you know, an orderly job at decolonization. And that any kind of covert action would, would alienate people, would completely completely undermine, undermine that process. Um, but uh, obviously the, the Suez uh, debacle um, alienated uh, people a lot, um, not least the the United States, where we see this this famous uh, fallout, diplomatic fallout, where the Americans um, essentially caught, forced Britain to, to to cause a halt to it. But one of the things that I I found p- uh, particularly interesting uh, from the research is that at the very same time the Americans were. Um, professing outrage at British collusion with Israel over the, the Suez invasion. Um, Britain and America were engaged in very, very top secret sensitive meetings trying to launch their own collusion plan to overthrow the government of Syria. <laughs> that was remarkable. This is, it was supposed to happen less than a year, less than a year after, after Suez. And they were going to... Um, Whereas Britain colluded with Israel and France to for Israel to, to invade or to military uh, to, to invade um, Egypt, they were going to collude. The Americans and the Brits were going to collude with either Iraq or Jordan to essentially invade Syria uh, and cause uh, uh, an, an overthrow of the Syrian government. So you have this different tiers of, of history. You have the, the open history and the diplomatic fighting between the Americans and the Brits over Suez. And at the very same time, you have this, this more secret tier of history where they are doing, doing the same thing that they were publicly uh, criticizing, criti- criticized for. And I, I, find, I find that um, that fascinating. And they're the kind of stories that come out in the files that get released um, 50 years after the the initial batch of of, um, of 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 files and allowing us to to fill in this this missing dimension of, of history as, it, as it's been called you what you've just described points to one of the challenges you face in terms of researching this book which is that there is there, there are certain barriers in terms of uh, when documents are released and yet as you 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 push past a lot of those, uh, rules, the 50-year rule, the 30 rule, to talk about what's happening uh, with what you uh, uh, identify as the second Cold War of the 1970s, 1980s. How did that 
change the uh, British application of covert action, and 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 uh, and what role does it play in terms of shaping and ultimately concluding the uh, Cold War between uh, uh, the West and the and so and the Soviet Union? It's becomes more disruptive. We have we have this 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 British approach, which is developed mainly in in Eastern Europe about, as we discussed, pinpricks, chipping away, eroding authority. Um, and this is this is, I would argue, the, the British way in covert action, which we still see today. The more hardcore approaches um, as evidenced in the in the Middle East in the 1950s, um, trying to overthrow governments, coups, even you know, talk of assassinating um, the Egyptian president, for example, um, that seems to have fallen by the by the by the wayside. And in the in the second Cold War, there's talk of um, gradually trying to erode Soviet authority in places like Poland, um, trying to use um, existing state private networks to ensure that Western ideas made their way into into uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And it brings, it's very, very difficult to answer the question of, you know, what difference did it make in the end of the Cold War? Because covert action did not win the Cold War. British approaches to covert action were, were involved in sort of intangible, gradual fostering what the Brits called national deviationism which basically meant um, how we can promote national identities amongst um, populations who live behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and it was de designed to happen over a great many years. It was designed to um, just very, very gradually and intangibly um, empower people to, be to become more open in their descent. And, and so... We can't pinpoint to a particular operation saying you know, this this helped bring down the the Cold War, and that's why it's so difficult to to make that judgment. I would argue that that um, the covert action probably helped the helped the forces of history along um, is probably the the best like the best way I can put it. And you described just how wide ranging that was from the you know eff the efforts to support those activities in Eastern Europe to their support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And it really gives a sense of a, in, in a sense, how they're continuing much more successfully a lot of those approaches that they had initially uh, started applying in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Yeah, they, um, they, the, the, the chief of, the chief of MI6, uh, the current chief of MI6 gave a, gave a speech in, in early December and he said something along the lines of, "It, it is MI6's job to to um, disrupt anti-British activities wherever they may be." Uh, which, and this was this is 2018, and that was almost word for word what um, Britain's defence, as he then was Defence Minister Harold Macmillan, said in the 1950s of MI6, which was MI6's job is to quote disrupt anti-British activities at source. So we see 
a lot of continuity in, in Britain's approach to, to covert action. It's about trying to disrupt activities before they become a serious threat to the British mainland. Um, and that included that, that included Afghanistan, where they were trying, basically, they were trying to disrupt um, the Soviet authority by aiding the, the Mujahideen and by particularly by facilitating um, other countries to help the Mujahideen as well, uh, particularly America. And this is another example where the Brits played on their relationship with the Americans to try and ensure that we had a bit more a bit more leverage. This was covert action, perhaps alongside um, intelligence more broadly and, and maybe nuclear weapons, is the last remaining area really where Britain still has some leverage in an increasingly asymmetric relationship. So the Brits saw covert action in the 1980s in Afghanistan as, as, as an area where they could um, have leverage, where they could influence uh, American activity, because the Brits had um, contacts and networks in Afghanistan, which the Americans didn't, because it traditionally fell into a British sphere of influence, and also because the Brits had fewer restraints. This, uh, as, as we, we will remember, is, was the era the post-Watergate, uh, post post-Church Commission, um, post you know, various congressional inquiries into, into American intelligence excesses. Uh, and so they were operating, operating almost one hand behind their back uh, and were quite keen to work alongside the Brits who were subjected to, to put it politely, a much less stringent oversight regime. <laughs> it's in interesting that you uh, cite this uh, speech that uh, the current... Uh, MI6 chief gives in 2018 and, and point to this notion of continuity because as you describe uh, in, in, in your final chapters, the, the challenges that are facing today are very different from the ones that it faced uh, when it first began applying covert action in peacetime because in the 1940s, 1950s, they're basically facing state actors. And yet, you know, in, in the post-Cold War world, they're increasingly facing non-state actors. And I, I, I was thinking about this, especially as I was reading your chapter on the Troubles, which which I thought was very interesting, given that you don't necessarily think of, uh, at first blush, the idea of, of, of MI6, uh, SIS, you know, engaging in what would you would think of as being part of MI5's purview. And how, yet in some ways, that is important of sort of the challenges to come in many respects. It is. And what we see in the Troubles is this ability or this attempt to, again, disrupt um, a, a non-state actor. And this wasn't entirely new. A lot of British covert action involved trying to disrupt um, nationalist actors um, in the Middle East and in, and in Southeast Asia. Um, but what, what Northern Ireland brought particularly was the, the, the sensitivity of being so close to the British homeland. Of being being close, being part of being part of the UK, and um, what could have been allowed, or what what was allowed in some far distant corner of the empire, um, was 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 essentially much more controversial um, on the streets of on the streets of the UK, and so what we see is this attempt uh, to legitimise some quite. Uh, sensitive operations, some, some quite um, 
since you know the ones that have been come out some quite out there operations and they had to be they had to be legitimized and my favorite one of my favorite little stories from this was was the um propagandists in the foreign office the foreign office department called the information research department which which, which oversaw the unattributable propaganda and they had to justify why they should be allowed a a role in in northern ireland and they said well we are allowed a role in Northern Ireland because we're fighting against um, the IRA. The IRA are uh, fall into our remit because a they're linked to Ireland, which is a foreign state. B they're supported by the Soviets, therefore they come into our under our remit. And thirdly, my, my favourite was um, they're Catholics. Um, that them therefore they're linked to the Vatican City, which is <laughs> a foreign state, and therefore we're allowed a role. Um, so you see this uh, interesting kind of um, attempts at, at linguistic acrobatics to, to try and justify what what the Brits were doing in in Northern Ireland, and it was it was quite hardcore. You know, some some quite some quite uh, serious propaganda operations, some quite serious. Um, undercover units who were authorized to use lethal force and and some of these ideas remain as you mentioned relevant in in the post-cold war era where um mi6 mi6 didn't have the biggest of roles in in northern ireland um, from a covert action perspective um but in the post-cold war world they become involved in disrupting not just terrorism but um, organized crime um proliferation of um, weapons of mass disrupt disruption and their, their remit broadens but the essential goal is always the same is to disrupt activities um, which would present a, a threat to British security but what's what's perhaps particularly striking is the the re-emergence of state-based covert action so in the last 15 years or so it's all been about how we can use covert action to disrupt terrorists essentially and uh, whereas now over the last few years um in a world where russian activity has become increasingly uh, prominent particularly since the annexation of crimea in in 2014 and the interference in the american presidential elections um the, there's there's obviously debate about what role western intelligence services should or should not um play in encountering uh, Russian uh, covert actions. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Of course. Um, so I am doing two projects. The first one I am looking at, at how we can how we can measure success or failure in covert action, because as we discussed earlier, it is it's really hard to say. You know, did this? What difference did this did this make? Did covert action? help win the Cold War? Historians don't have an answer. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. And the, the second area, slightly more juicy area, is um, my, my colleague Richard Aldrich um, and I are working on a book tracing the, the relationship between the British secret services and the British royal family from the time of Queen Victoria. And uh, we're finding some pretty cool stuff. Well, I think if you can throw in Meghan Markle, you'll definitely have a bestseller on this side of the pond. <laughs> well, uh, Roy Cormack, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. <laughs>